Welcome to the Thrive Vineyard Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Kevin Kiefer. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit thrivevineyard.com. Good. Good to see you this morning. Welcome. Love every one of you guys. Great to, great to be with you. So, um, okay. So I know there's a couple of people here, uh, this week that weren't here last week. We are in the middle of this sermon series and we're looking at character sketches. We're looking at, we just thought it would be fun to, to just dive into the lives of different people in the Bible that, um, were living extraordinary lives. And we just, um, want the, we want God to call us as a church to not just live sort of like normal American lives, but to call us to live really, really differently, to live extraordinary lives for God, for his kingdom, for his glory. And so last week, we uh, we looked at the prophet Elijah, who was uh, kind of considered Israel's greatest prophet, and we saw how he fought to restore um, worship to God uh, in Israel. And Israel, at, in, during Elijah's time, had the most horrible king Israel ever had, this evil guy named King Ahab. And so um, Elijah was used by God. He arranged this sort of like my God versus your God showdown against the the uh, prophets of Baal, this this horrible uh, pagan idol. Part of the worship to Baal, as you might remember, was that uh, Baal required child sacrifice, among other things. And so uh, God wanted to like wipe this guy out or this this pagan god out. And so there was this this incredible showdown, and God, of course, prevailed. And the story of of Elijah's life church was uh, basically the story of a person who would step out in faith, even at great risk to his life, risk to his reputation, you know, risk to his comfort. But because he was so bold and so faithful and so willing to step out and to do um, whatever it is that the Lord asked to do daring things. Elijah got to see God do the most extraordinary things in his life and through his life. And so my challenge to us last week as a church was that we would look for opportunities to step out in faith, to step into even uncomfortable places, places where we may not have ever gone before as Christians, to share our faith, to pray for the sick, to uh, trust God with our finances, you know, finances, all kinds of different things. But church, we are a church that lives by faith in God. And God is glorified and honored when we step out in faith and we, we try to do things for his glory, for his honor that we really couldn't do on our own, where God would have to show up. Do anybody remember we talked about that last week? You guys with me? Okay, great. So today we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to dive into the life of Elijah's heir apparent, his protege, Elisha, with an S-H-A, right? And the key theme, church, of Elisha's life, this is, this is so good. Uh, it might be uh, a tough sell at the beginning, but this is so good. Elisha's whole life, I believe, was based around hunger. The, the key theme, I think, for Elisha was that he was hungry. And God, because of his hunger, God blessed him. He wasn't blessed because he just was sort of like the, the guy that won the lottery, the lucky guy. He wasn't blessed because God is a benevolent God and he pours out good gifts. Elisha was blessed by God mightily and used by God because he was hungry 
for God. He was hungry to be used by God. He was hungry to experience God. And so his story is the story about how God moves in response to our hunger. He actually moves more powerfully when there's hunger in the room. And when there is no hunger, we see that God actually doesn't seem to move as much. And so I'm going to be commending you guys to get hungry today. And that might be a little bit tricky because um, I think if we were honest with ourselves, pretty much everything in us works to just satisfy our hunger, right? We, tr- we try to do whatever we can to not be hungry in any area of our life. And so like earlier this summer, um, Molly, it was like, I don't know, sometime in the afternoon, Molly was like, um, we were talking about dinner. She said, are, are you hungry? And I just, I thought about it for a second, which I don't normally do. And I said, I don't think I've been hungry for two weeks, Literally, like I have eaten or drank something prior to the feeling of hunger for at least two weeks straight where I'd never actually felt the sensation of hunger, right? And in some ways, this is sort of what we do as a culture in America. We live in this sort of unique uh, place, this unique country where our culture strives to satisfy our every need, no matter what it is, even before we actually feel that need. Um, a number of years ago, my Molly and I were in Europe together, and we were kind of backpacking around Europe, and I remember um, getting into this little town in Austria, I think it was Austria, and we had arrived in this town about 10.30 at night or whatever, and I was like starving and thirsty, and so I wanted like an iced coffee and a meal uh, at 11 o'clock at night in this tiny little town in Austria, and I was not able to find coffee. No place was open. There were no restaurants open. I was unbelievably, like, put out. Like, what, what is this place that I can't get a decaf cappuccino at 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday? I can't get a hot hamburger on a Sunday night? It was the craziest thing. I was like, this place is archaic. How do they survive here? Right? That's kind of the way that we think about things a little bit. Um, and it's true too, not just of our appetites, but it's actually true. Uh, we have, we don't even want to be bored anymore, right? I, um, I had to go to the post office this week to mail something off for my mom and dad and and I had to wait in line. Now, what do you do? What do you do when you're waiting in line at the post office? Get your phone out. You're not going to sit there with your hands in your pocket like some dummy, right? You're going to take your phone out and you're going to look at that thing because we cannot be bored for more than three minutes. It is just an untenable situation, right? We are so not used to having any kind of a vacuum in our, in our lives, any kind of emptiness, because it produces the sort of like uncomfortable feeling that we are less and less familiar with and we're less and less familiar or comfortable with in our culture. And so I understand that selling the merits of hunger to you guys might not be um, too much of an easy sell because what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to move the meter I want you to actually change. I'm, I'm hoping that at the end of our time this morning that you will decide, 
I need to get hungrier than I currently am right now. And that's really Elisha's story. And so the way that Elisha's story sort of begins is that Elisha was kicking around life with Elijah, the prophet, and Elijah was sort of teaching him the trade. And at the end of Elijah's story, God was going to do this crazy end of life miracle with Elijah. Elijah wasn't going to, uh, he wasn't going to die of old age like what we kind of hope we're going to do. He wasn't going to be martyred in his prime like the apostles. Uh, were in the New Testament. No, God decided that Elijah was going to be, he was going to wrap up his earthly ministry and he was going to be taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And as I read that, I decided that's it. That is absolutely the way that I want to go. Like, I don't want to go any other way than a chariot of fire in heaven at some point during my ministry time, right? And so, so here is the interesting thing is that everybody sort of knew that this was going to happen. And so Elijah and Elisha would go from town to town. And uh, whenever they got to the, to a town, the prophets in that town would say, hey, Elisha, do you know that God is going to take Elijah from you today? And Elisha was like, yeah, I know. I got it. And every single town that they got to, they kept on telling him this. He was like, just, just let it go. I understand that this is, this is what's going to happen. And so we finally get to the end of their time together and um, Elijah stops to have a conversation with Elisha and to talk to him about this. And so in 2 Kings chapter 2, it says this. When they had crossed, and that is they had just crossed the Jordan River, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Elijah replied, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. You've asked a difficult thing, a difficult thing, Elijah said. And yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. So let me pull over for a second here. Elijah, Elisha asked Elijah, will you give me a double portion of your spirit? Right? In other words, he wanted a double portion of Elijah's blessing. He was saying, I want a double portion of the calling that is on your life. I want a double portion of your prophetic ministry. I want a double portion of the power that's on you, the miracles that you perform, the intimacy that you have with God. I want a double portion of all of the blessing of your life. And this was such a big ask that Elijah wasn't even prepared to, to say, yeah, God's going to do this. He said, I, I don't know. That's kind of a big thing. Let's just see what the Lord does, which takes us to verse 11. So as they were walking along and talking together, it says, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind and Elisha saw this and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And then he took hold of his garment and he tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him. And he went back and he stood at the bank of the Jordan. And he took the cloak um, that had fallen from Elijah and he struck the water with it. And, uh, and then he said, where now is the Lord God of Elijah? He asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left and he crossed over. And so Elijah is taken in this chariot of fire. Elisha sees it. And he says, I see the chariot. I see the fire, uh, which was the sign that he would receive the double portion. But then as the cloak falls, uh, Elijah's cloak, Elisha takes it and he smacks the Jordan River with it. And the reason he did that is because right before this passage that we're reading, Elijah had done that very same thing. They had to cross the Jordan River. There was no bridge. And so he took his cloak and he slapped the water and the water parted. And this was sort of uh, Elisha's way of trying to figure out, did I actually receive this blessing? Did I receive this double portion of Elijah's spirit? 
And that's exactly what happened. And so God sort of showed Elisha that, yes, you did. And this story, church, is the story of the reward of hunger. Elisha brought God, and he brought Elijah a crazy ask. I want double of everything that you are, everything you've done. I want twice as much. And God honored that request. He honored that hunger, right? And this isn't just an Elijah-Elisha thing. And it's important for us to know that. This isn't just like one little moment in Christian history. When Jesus... Jesus was preaching um, what I believe is the most famous sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You are blessed, church, when you get hungry. You're blessed when you're thirsty, when you're just crying out for something of God. He was teaching us that God is a rewarder of spiritual hunger. He wants us to be hungry for him. And um, there's a guy named Bill Johnson who is, has done amazing things as a pastor. And he talks about hunger. And he says that hunger in Christians and in life is actually a sign of health. It's not a sign of unhealth. It's a sign of health, right? In other words, when, for example, our kids stop eating, we know that that's not a good thing, that there's something wrong with them. If we have uh, aging parents, if our elderly parents stop eating, we know that, that something is not right. And in the same way, in the spirit, spiritual hunger is actually a sign of real health and vibrancy. But I want to tell you why, um, why stewarding and caring for and stirring up hunger in us is actually why it should be really, really important to you guys. And the reality is this, church, and that is that hunger isn't an Elijah, Elisha thing. It isn't even just a God thing, but it's a life thing. And for those of us in this room and those of us listening online, I would say this, that generally speaking, we get exactly what we're hungry for. Generally speaking, not always, but usually we get whatever it is that we are most hungry for. So we need to be careful and we need to actually cultivate and be thoughtful about our act, uh, about our appetites. So John Piper said this, uh, or he wrote this. He said, our appetites, listen, our appetites dictate the direction of our lives. Our appetites dictate the direction of our lives, whether it be the cravings of our stomachs, the passionate desire for possessions or power, or the longings of our spirits for God. But for the Christian, the hunger for anything besides God can be the arch enemy, while hunger for God and for him alone is the only thing that will bring victory. And I just want to ask you, do you guys know that the thing that will most often determine the direction of your life is your hunger? So just as an example, for, for the most part, generally speaking, people that care most about money, those people will pursue and get money at the cost of other things in their life. They just will. For people that most want to have a life of ease and entertainment, they will probably find a life of ease and entertainment, but they may not change the world. Right? For those of us that um, are interested in physical perfection, generally people that are most hungry for, for, for you know, physical fitness, they are physically fit people. In other words, we, our hunger drives us, our appetites, and that's the thing, is that our truest appetites, church, they don't lie. Our truest appetites do not lie. I believe that our lives are like self-driving cars, right? If if you had a Tesla and it was like one of those self-driving ones, you would get in your car in the morning, you would program where you wanted to go, and off it would take you, and it would just be automatic. And in the same way, 
Church, I believe that our truest, deepest hunger sets the course for our lives and not the hunger that we wish we had. Our truest, deepest hunger sets the course for our lives and not the hunger that we wish we had. And so the presence or the absence of hunger in our lives is absolutely huge to our life experience. The hunger that we have will determine who we will be. It will determine where we will go. And it will determine what we will do spiritually, physically, emotionally, and all those other things. So, does that make sense so far? So what if we lack hunger? What if we, we just, it's like we want to be hungry, but we're, we're not, you know, we're not super hungry. Like what if we don't have the hunger that I'm sort of suggesting to us? Well, that brings us to the story of Elisha and this guy named Naaman, right? Has anybody heard of Naaman? Have you, do you know how to name Naaman? So Naaman in the Bible, he was the commander of the, uh, the army of Syria. And in, in, in this uh, passage, it's called Aram. The, the nation's called Aram. But he was this powerful army, uh, guy, a general, and he was incredibly successful. And, um, and so his story is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 5. We're gonna, we're gonna read about him, okay? And it says this. Now, Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Naaman was the commander of the army uh, of the king of Aram, and he was a great man in the sight of his master, the king, and he was highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. But he had leprosy. Now, just a quick reminder, leprosy was a social and physical death sentence in the time. Once you had leprosy, that was the beginning of the end for you because it was so contagious and because there was no cure. And worse than that, you would be cast out of your home and cast out of your community once you had leprosy because they were so afraid of it. And so not only were you on the path to death, but at the same time, you were also isolated from your family, your friends, and even your own home. So this was a horrible, horrible situation. And because leprosy was no respecter of person uh, of persons, this great man got leprosy and he probably didn't tell many people about it at all. Maybe just his inner circle. And so in verse two, it says this. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, the wife, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria. Which prophet are we referring to? There you go. Elisha. If she would, if he would only see the prophet that's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went to his master, the king, and he told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram said. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he sends this letter to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel is freaked out. He thinks that he's being provoked. He's thinking that that the king of Aram is setting him up for a situation that he can't possibly do anything about. This is like bad news. But Elisha goes to the king of Israel, and he says, don't worry about it. Send Naaman to me. I'll take care of the whole thing. So we're going to dig into the rest of the story. We're going to read some scripture together. Verse 9. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots with great pomp and circumstance, right? And he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself in the Jordan seven times uh, and your flesh will be restored. You'll be cleansed. That's it. But Naaman went away angry and he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned away uh, and he went off in a rage. He was angry, right? He was dishonored in this. 
But Naaman's servants went to him and they said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? Um, how much more when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? And so he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and it became clean like that of a young boy. And then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. And he stood before them and he said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So church, this is the story of a miracle almost missed. This is the story of a miracle almost missed. The mighty Naaman was in dire need of a miracle of healing, but he actually rejected the prescription for his healing because he was so full of something. There was something that was greater than his hunger for healing, and it was his hunger of pride. He wanted things to be done his way. All Listen to this. All of the honor that he had craved and received in his role as the, the commander of the armies and all of the the wealth that he had desired and accumulated, all the favor that he had gotten from the king and other powerful people, that stuff filled him up to such a high degree that it made him no longer completely hungry for the healing that he needed that would save his own life. And he said, I want to be healed, but I want God to heal me my way, not in his way. And I just wonder, you guys, how often, this is my question for us, it's kind of an important question. How often is it that you and I lack the spiritual hunger that is required for us to receive a breakthrough from God? How often is it in our lives that we don't have the requisite hunger in us that we would need to actually experience the blessing of God and the things that God wants to do in our lives and through our lives. I think it's an important issue for us. Well, thankfully, Naaman had some great wise servants around him who said, get off of your high horse, humble yourself, and get into the river, man. And he did that. And sure enough, when Naaman was emptied of his pride, God filled him with healing, right? And in the end, because he was... Uh, Excuse me, because his servants were wise enough and Elisha was wise enough to humble this man, he walked away from it, not just personally healed, but he walked away from it declaring, this powerful man declared that there was no God in the whole world except for the God of Israel. And so what I want to say to us, church, is that hunger is a friend. Hunger to us is a friend. And so the question is, what if we're not spiritually hungry? What if in this moment we are more content than we want to be? Or what if we're, we're kind of like hungry, but we're not actually able to, to experience some of the greater things of God because we're just, we just can't get ourselves over sort of the hump there. Well, I think that a lot of us are in the spot. I mean, I, but I, I know a lot of you guys I know that most of you do want more, but sometimes we start to spin our wheels a little bit, right? And so is it sort of a thing where it's like you're either hungry or you're not, you're either an Elisha or you're a Naaman or something like that? Well, church, I believe that there is really good news because our God, God, is a generous God. He's the God that says anyone who asks receives. Anyone who seeks finds. Anyone who knocks on the door, it, the door will be open to him. We have a God who is the God of the how much more, right? Like the Bible says, the, the, Jesus said that even though us, the, us regular dads, we know 
how to give our kids good gifts, but how much more will God give good gifts to his children who ask him for it? God loves to honor our hunger. And so what can we do? And this is what I, I want us to sort of like start thinking about this. What can we do to stir up hunger in our lives? Because I want to show us that hunger is the conduit to blessing. Well, first of all, I want to encourage you guys to do this. If you don't feel hungry enough for yourself or for the Lord, I want to encourage you to ask yourself and maybe ask the Lord, what is making me feel full? What makes me feel full? What is currently quenching my spiritual hunger? What is satisfying me in a way that is creating a barrier between me and the Lord, right? Um, are you guys, are you giving too much of your life and your thought life to your work? I, um, I was at, uh, I was at, uh, the grocery store at Mariano's and I ran into this woman. The checkout woman was from Austria or Australia. And I always ask people that are from different countries about their experience in America. And I said, what, what do you think about Americans? What's the difference between here in Australia? And she said, easy. She said, Americans live to work and Australians work to live. That's it. That's how it works around here. And that, like, that should give us pause. An outsider looks at us and they say, you live to work around here, right? So maybe our work is quenching our uh, our hunger for God. Maybe it's spending too much time dragging our kids around to do sports. Maybe it's social media. But I want to encourage you to ask the question, what is is satisfying you in an ungodly way? What is causing you to, to not have a passionate and vibrant hunger for God? And so, by the way, um, Molly mentioned our flames. This sermon is all about stirring up our first flame. What's our first flame? It's the ignite flame. It's okay to look at the boards. We are trying to ignite a passionate, zealous, vibrant relationship with Jesus here, right? And so the way that I describe um, the enemy of our hungers, I think of it as junk food, right? Junk food are the lesser things that we feast on that numb us or satisfy us so that we don't press into the, the, to the greater things of God. And so in Naaman's case, his thing was pride, right? And so what was it? It was, it was wealth. It was accomplishment. It was human honor. And all of that stuff became a block between him and a vibrant relationship with God. And I think that Naaman's junk food can be our our junk food as well. I think we kind of struggle with that as well. But if I had to say, um, maybe one of the most major things that I believe that we struggle with is I believe that we most often struggle with um, this desire for a constant flow of entertainment and a constant flow of information through our screens, you guys. It's going to be a pastor railing on screens for a few minutes here, right? We are constantly filling ourselves, which is to say we fill our time, we t- fill our mental energy, we fill our, our, our uh, just, you know, any extra space that we have with the junk food of social media and TV and things like that. And because we do that, we often miss God or we miss experiencing the deeper, richer things of God. We live in this constant state, I believe, of distraction, right? And I actually like that word. I actually was thinking about it this week, distraction. So the prefix of distraction, you know what it is? Dis, and dis means no, means not. It means none. Traction is like the ability to be able to move forward. And when we are distracted, which we are constantly, we do it to ourselves, we are making ourselves unable to move forward in all of the meaningful ways of life. Distraction is having no ability to move forward. And so what is the antidote, church? What is the antidote to all, to being full with junk food? Well, the antidote, I believe, 
is emptiness. It's emptiness. I believe that emptiness is our key to hunger. But there's actually three key things that I want to commend to you guys this morning. Three things that will um, stir up more hunger in your lives. And this is going to resonate with you. This will make sense to you. The three things are this. Um, three things that stir up more hunger in our lives. First one is emptiness, which is emptiness of stomach, emptiness of time, emptiness of mind space. The second one is encounter, right? And when I talk about encounter, what I mean is, is a powerful experience with God. You'll, you'll, you'll know about this, about experiencing God and that stirs up hunger. And then finally, the third one is pain. Pain can stir up hunger for God. Something is as it shouldn't be. And all of these have the power to bring us to a deeper place of desire for God in our lives. And here's the good news. All of these can either be constructed, pursued, or utilized. So let's let's start with encounter. Okay, so encounter is that thing where it's like, how many of you guys have ever had an experience with God of any sort where it left you wanting more of God? Right? We've, we've, we've experienced this. It's been like a moment in worship where it's just like we just felt undone. Maybe it was like you were at a conference and there was just, just this great ministry time and the Holy Spirit was there. Maybe it was just a powerful teaching or you were out at Rand Grove serving the poor and, and God was just touching your heart there. We have all been in spaces and places where we have encountered God so powerfully that it didn't, it satisfied us. But it also left us wanting more of that, didn't it? And so one thing that we could do to stir up hunger in our lives is I would encourage you to go to places and to go to spaces and to be with people that are experiencing God powerfully. Go after the things of the Lord. Show up to that worship night. Show up to that Holy Spirit conference. Show up to Rangrove or other places where you know that God is on the move. Because when you're around people and when you're in places where God is on the move, you will be stirred up. Up, and you will see your hunger grow. And on the other side of the, uh, of the coin, hardship can also be an incredible conduit to us getting hungry and experiencing God more deeply, whether it's uh, a divorce, the loss of someone that we love, a sickness, any, you know, our kids struggle, our parents struggle, all of those things can take us in one of two directions. Pain and hardship can harden our hearts and make us push God away. Or if we allow God to move in those things, pain and hardship and disappointment and discouragement, those things can draw us closer to God. And when we allow that to happen, I hope that you understand that you will be far more powerful and far closer to God after that event than you were before it. Pain and hardship can be a powerful conduit of us experiencing God and growing deeper in God and experiencing uh, just all of what he has for us. That was Naaman's thing, right? Leprosy changed his whole life. And so we can choose how we will respond to that. But I want to say today, the thing that I really want to commend to you guys, most importantly, is that I want to commend to you emptiness, right? Uh, that, that our best tool for hunger is emptiness. Now, I know that for, for many of us, we might think that emptiness equals poverty. That's not a good thing, right? We don't want to be empty. We don't want to be hungry. But I want to just share with us that the quickest way and the most powerful tool for creating hunger in life is emptiness. It's, it's opening up space in us. This is, and when we, and when we create emptiness, it creates it's hunger, and hunger becomes the conduit of the greater things of the Lord. But hunger only comes, church, when we get empty. 
And so how do we do that? We do that by slowing and we do that by stopping. So how do we do this? We get hungry by emptying ourselves, by slowing and stopping, right? And so here's one thing that I might encourage you to do. You could take a macro look at your life. And the way to do that is you would get out your calendar and you would sort of look at what does your life look like by way of your calendar. And you could sort of look at it and say, does the way that I live my life and does how I do calendaring and people and activity and work and all that stuff, is this a life that is conducive for experiencing God very, very deeply? Is the way that I live all of my life, is this conducive for breakthroughs with God? Is this conducive for me hearing God's voice? Is this conducive for me going deep with the Lord? And you might look at everything that you're doing, all of the activity that you're doing, you might decide, man, this, this schedule is really, really full. God doesn't have a ton of time to just be with me, and I don't have a ton of time to be with him. So calendaring and the way that we spend our time and how, you know, what our days look like, if you took a step back and started to look at that, you might discover, wow, the way that I'm living my life, it does not give me much opportunity. I, I don't have a lot of hunger there. But secondly, I want to say that shutting down our screens of every sort is absolutely critical to freeing up space in our hearts and in our minds and in our spirits. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I left my, I went to, um, to Target and I left my phone at home and I discovered it when I was like nearly to target and I almost had a panic attack right like I was like I'm like pulling into the parking lot at time like should I go home and get it I don't even know what to do here and so I survived the experience but I told Molly afterwards I was like I felt naked have you ever said that like I felt naked without my phone but the thing is is who are we supposed to be clothed with who Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ is supposed to close us. And yet I believe, church, that, that our phones, like who is it that we turn to a million times a day to check in? Is it Jesus? Or is it our phone? Is it our smart device? And I, church, I want to say to us that, that I think that our phones are acting in many ways like our best friend, like our companion for life in a way that only Jesus was supposed to fulfill. He is supposed to be our companion. And so my encouragement to us is to, to walk away from our devices, to put them away, to put them down and to create open space in our minds and in our hearts until it feels awkward until there's a vacancy until there's an emptiness because only in that place of emptiness church I believe will we begin to feel the craving and feel the hunger and begin to be able to seek after something more important than the the, the junk food that we have been feasting on and I actually have this opinion I could be wrong but I think that if Jesus were doing ministry today when he called us to fast I think the first fast he would call us to would be to our screens but but obviously fasting food is, is really good as well. I want to talk to the parents in the room for a second and parents to be as a parent. I hope you guys know that giving your kids everything that they need is a sure path to destroying their character and their happiness right? If you want to see your kids grow, it's important that we actually cultivate and protect life experiences that make them feel hungry, that actually make them feel unfulfilled. 
Our kids need to feel that sense of being unfulfilled. And if your kids are younger, don't be so quick to give them a device. If they have a phone, I would encourage you to take it away from them for large chunks of space so that they don't feel constantly satisfied, so they don't feel constantly full with them, right? Create open space for your kids so that they get bored, so they don't know what to do with themselves, so that they can create fun and create experiences for themselves. We need this. And as your kids get older, I want to encourage you to fight the instinct that you might have to rescue your kids from every hardship and from the natural consequences of all of their choices. They need to feel that pain because in that place, will they grow and will they turn back to the Lord, right? You guys with me on this? And so rather than rescuing, We need to not rescue. We need to step back. And rather than rescuing ourselves from that momentary pinch of boredom or feeling unfulfilled, I want us to create more of that. Because I believe, church, that it's only through that empty space, through that feeling of emptiness, that we will begin to be able to see God and to move towards him. And so just to wrap this up, you guys, God wants us hungry. Hunger is a friend to us. Think about Elijah. He asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Think of Solomon who said, I pray God that you would give me wisdom. I don't care about riches or power. Just give me wisdom to lead your people. Think about Moses who said, I just want to see your face, God. I just want to see your face. Think about King David who said, I am like a deer who pants after water. I thirst for you, God. Those people were world changers and their names are on our lips today, a half a world away. Now, I know that we may not put ourselves in the company of David or Elisha or any of those guys, but I want you to know that God sees a life that he dreamed for you. He sees the life that he has for you, and it's a life of meaning. It's a life of purpose. It's a life of impact. It's a life of intimacy and power. It is, it is a better life than the one that we are currently living. And I believe, church, that as we stir up our hunger, that hunger will bring us into the presence of God in a way that nothing else could, and it will satisfy us in a way that nothing else could. Let's get hungry for the Lord. Amen? All right, why don't we stand up? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I told you earlier that uh, one of the, maybe the, the, a good first step would be to do sort of an inventory and to just sort of look at your own life and and just kind of try to do some discovery work about what your life really looks like, where your uh, mind usually rests, what you're up to, and um, and the Holy Spirit, the God's Spirit, is amazing at at just seeing us even more clearly than we see ourselves. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to take um, a tiny bit of space, and I just would encourage you to just close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that. And I just want to encourage you to just say, "Okay, God, uh, speak to me," and I, I want you to think in the presence of God, about your life. And I want you to just look for places where you have been satisfied with junk food, where you've been feasting on things that rather than bringing you closer to God, they actually insulate you. They protect you from God. I just want you to just, Holy Spirit, would you just come and reveal our hearts to us right now? And I pray, Lord, that... um, that you would identify for us 
the places where we need to turn, the places where we need to change, the practices of our lives that are only um, blocking us from experiencing you more deeply. Lord, forgive us for um, pursuing so often things that numb us, that just provide empty entertainment. And I, I pray that like only you can, that you would begin to stir up a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, Lord. Lord. 